Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Okay, so as has become tradition on the One Football Podcast, we're going to start with a a little fun opening question. Uh, The question I'm going to ask you this week is, what is the best match you've ever seen in the flesh and why, Constantine? So I would have to go with Frankfurt versus Kaiserslautern all the way back in 1999. Uh, it was the last day of the Bundesliga season. Frankfurt was um, hosting the still reigning champion Kaiserslautern, needed a victory with three different or three goals difference as far as I remember. Four teams could still be relegated. I think every team ended at a relegation place in the afternoon. But in the end, Frankfurt <laughs> just won 5-1 with two goals in the very last minutes of the game. and saved uh, the day and uh, also saved the day for most of my family which almost exclusively supports Frankfurt. Oh really? It was an amazing that. day uh, for well almost everyone in the family. Uh, pretty much everyone was screaming and jumping around. It was crazy. Yeah. Wow. Natalia? Uh, it has to be Botafogo against Nacional from Uruguay this year. Oh yeah? It was a game for the Libertadores and uh, yeah I was in the stadium and the atmosphere was just great. Um, uh, that my team scored two goals in the first five minutes, and that meant we are through to the quarterfinals. But, uh, the atmosphere was impressive. Everyone was just singing and jumping and so happy. And we left the stadium singing. Uh, we stopped the traffic in the city, and everyone was with their body out of the car and buses windows <laughs> just singing and screaming and well it was amazing because at that moment we really believed we could win and that ended up that we didn't <laughs> but but it's fine it was yeah. an incredible game sounds like yeah well we'll talk more about brazil a little bit later on um, in the meantime welcome to the one football podcast uh, i'm dan burke joining me today from berlin is constantine keller and all the way from Rio de Janeiro, it's Natalia, how do I say it? Araujo. Araujo. <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining me. Um, just before we kick things off, as usual, if you'd like to send your comments, queries, praise or abuse to us, the email address to do so is podcast at onefootball.com. Uh, we'd also love it if you'd head on over to iTunes, give the podcast a rating and leave a comment to let us know how we're getting on. Uh, so following Peru's win over New Zealand in the early, early hours of this morning, uh, we now have a, a full complement of the full 32 nations that will be taking part in the World Cup in Russia next summer. Uh, they are Russia, the hosts, Be- uh, Belgium, Germany, England, Spain, Poland, Serbia, Iceland, France, Portugal, Switzerland, Croatia, Sweden, Denmark, Brazil, Uruguay, Argentina, Colombia, Peru, Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, Iran, Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, Australia, Nigeria, Egypt, Senegal, Tunisia and Morocco. Uh, now, one of the big, uh, or perhaps the most glaring omissions from that list, Constantine, is Italy. Can you believe that for the first time in our lifetime, we're not going to see Italy at a World Cup? It's still hard to believe, as pretty much everyone who probably is listening right now, I grew up with Italy being a part of the big tournaments. It was just a natural thing to be. Yet, I think it is the uh, consequence of a negative development within their football. And um, yeah, it's sad because I think uh, there will be something missing. On the other hand, it's a chance for them to uh, like face the roots of the problems and maybe come back stronger. 
Mm. I mean, they, they're certainly going to get a new coach now. Giampiero Vanchora was, was sacked last night. Um, he, he, I don't know if you saw that game, Natalia, but he didn't bring Lorenzo Insigne off the bench in that game. Um, th- th- there was a point where they were bringing Daniel De Rossi on and Daniel De Rossi said, basically, what, what the hell are you putting me on for? We need to win this game, not draw it. Is that one of the worst and most stubborn managerial decisions you've ever seen, do you think, from Vanchora? Um, as far as I can remember, I think it is. Uh, I mean, at that moment, Italy was already out of the World Cup, so they needed to take risks. And uh, if in that case they needed a goal to keep their hopes alive, then you should go with someone who is actually trained to score goals. So, yeah, that was a big mistake. Mm. Because, I mean, he's one of the form players in Europe at the moment, Insigne, and he's, he can't even get in Italy's team. It's it's very strange. Um, I mean, they're, they're in the lookout for a new manager now. Carlo Ancelotti's been named as a potential candidate for that. Do you think that would be a good fit for him at this stage in his career? Well, when I was talking about facing the roots of the problems, I think one of the problems is that uh, they pretty much put uh, old, experienced men in almost every position, and that included the manager. I think they should rather start with a fresh face also, and especially on that position. Ancelotti is a fine manager, especially when it comes to dealing with players. But I think as a national coach, he could not play his uh, biggest and strongest cards. So I don't think it would be a good decision, to be honest. Mm. Antonio Conte has been mentioned as another possible candidate. Um, There there were quite a few in the frame for it. But um, I mean, we talk a lot about Italy and a lot of people have talked about them this week. But let's give some credit to Sweden. I mean, that was a a huge result for them to get two uh, clean sheets against Italy. I think they had 25% possession in the San Siro the other night, which shows you what a back-to-the-wall kind of job it was. do you, do you think that the, the, the better off since uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic left the national setup? I hope people won't get mad at me, but I never understood this hype with Zlatan. Uh, of course, he his name is something that causes impact, but uh, I wouldn't pick him for my top 10 players. So, I don't know. I I think maybe now they don't have like uh, this person to hide behind. Of course, Zlatan had uh, this big uh, leadership role inside the national team but maybe that he's not there anymore the players feel a bit more loose to play and mm. be themselves on the page so I don't know I, I don't think they are better or worse but yeah. I just don't think Slaton is all of this Constantine, do you think he should come out of retirement for the World Cup or or is Sweden better off without him? I would absolutely not recommend that. I think that Sweden's collective has become a lot stronger without Ibrahimovic, who is without a shadow of a doubt an awesome forward still. But uh, I think the image that Natalia used of a person to hide behind is quite accurate. Now they, uh, yeah, they don't have this big name that everybody focuses on. Instead, the collective is the most important thing, as it should be in football from my point of view. And therefore, I would definitely not recommend to them uh, to get him back. Mm. Despite the fact I don't think the coach wants him, to be honest. Yeah. Were you as sad as I was to see Gianluigi Buffon in tears at the final whistle there? Feels like it's sort of an end of an era for Italian football, his his retirement, uh, which which has come from international football now and will probably come at the end of the season for Juventus as well. Uh, yeah, I think it was sad for everyone seeing someone like uh, Buffon crying. And uh, it's not an, the end of an era just for Italian football, but I think for international football. And uh, it's also sad to think about the fact that most of the players uh, who grew up with us were part of our childhood and teenage years are all retiring. Uh, Buffon, Lam, Close, Totti, Alonso. 
And yeah, it was really sad. And I'm definitely going to miss him, my World Cup sticker album. <laughs> um, aside from Italy missing out on the World Cup, we've got teams like the Netherlands, Chile. Um, does it sadden you that, that these great, once great footballing nations are in the state that they are now? Or do you think it's good that the World Cup is kind of evolving in that way? On the first point of view, uh, it might hurt the attractiveness of a competition. On the other hand, that's what competition is about. And these teams simply were not good enough in their competition to qualify. So I think it's a chance to uh, open a chapter for other nations to shine and rise at the World Cup. And I think it's pretty interesting to have teams like, I don't know, the first thing that came to my mind was Panama. Mm. I have no idea what to expect from them. I'm really curious to see them. Yeah. Same goes for teams like Senegal. I think the last time they qualified was in 2002. I was mm -hmm. 12 years back then. Mm -hmm. It's really going to be really interesting to see all these new teams. And uh, I think in the end, everybody will profit from it. And these teams who failed this time will come back stronger. Yeah. I'm pretty sure about that. Rebuild. So I asked the guys on the podcast this uh, last week this question. I'm going to ask you two now. If you had to put your neck on the line right now and say who would win the World Cup next summer, who would you go for? Oh, just naming one is pretty difficult. My two big favorites are France and Germany. Um, I think both teams have an in insane amount of quality within them. It's going to be really interesting if this young French team already does have the uh, the competitive cleverness, one might say, mm -hmm. to win such a thing. I think the experience rather speaks for Germany, but uh, I think one of these two names is going to be on top in the end. Nice. Natalia? Yeah, I agree with Konstantin. I haven't put much thought into that. And I would only add Spain. Uh, maybe they're not as strong as Germany and France, but I think we can hope to see them at least going to the semifinals. So, yeah, I would go with either Germany, France or Spain. Not Brazil? No, Brazil. I think Brazil's not there yet. Well, that leads us nicely onto our next topic. Uh, since we've got a, a real-life Brazilian in the studio with us, it would be remiss of us not to talk about Brazil. Um, so, uh, is your nation finally over that 7-1 defeat at the hands of Germany at the last World Cup, <laughs> do you think? Yeah, I think uh, everybody's over it already. We actually make jokes about it. So, for example, if you're having a bad day, you can just say, oh, it's just another 7-1 in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Or when Germany does something good in football or politics or whatever, we just say, there they go, they just card the eighth goal. But uh, the topic it only comes up in a serious way when Brazil and Germany are facing each other. For example, during the Olympics last year, some people say that it was the revenge, but I strongly disagree. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't. I actually had um, I had a bet on that game. Um, it was Germany to win and both teams to score. And I've never celebrated a goal like I celebrated that one goal that Brazil <laughs> scored in like the 89th minute or whatever it was. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, awesome. my, my bet came in. <laughs> Uh, so obviously Dunga was the coach of Brazil at that time. Um, it's now I want I always want to call him tea table. That's not how you say it, is it? It's uh, it depends of the region in Brazil. I would say in São Paulo they'd say chite, right? But uh, in Rio we say chichi. Chichi. Okay. So what's changed? Do you think for Brazil since since Chiche took over? They've scored thirty eight goals in sixteen matches, just five conceded. Um, first of all, I think he were, was able to conquer the players' trust again. He has this um, acting like a father thing, so he was a very good choice to deal with the 7-1 trauma and to deal with uh, the young players. Second of all, he actually built a team, so Brazil now can play collectively. Uh, Brazil now has a game plan. They're not just waiting for Neymar to sort uh, everything out. 
uh, he understands that he does not have much time with the players, so he doesn't try to change them. He just tries to improve what uh, each player is already doing in their club. And finally, uh, he is a very lovable person, so he knows how to deal with the media. And uh, Dunga's terrible relationship with the press totally destroyed him. So Titi understands that he has to be nice with mm -hmm. the journalists, so they will leave him to work in peace. Mm. I read a nice uh, piece, a nice uh, interview with Roberto Firmino this week, and he had this to say about Chiche. He said uh, uh, he's played a big role in the Salazar's ascent. He is a brilliant coach with a unique way of working, but he's also a marvellous person. He makes everyone feel at ease. It's because of the, his management that the team spirit is as good as it could possibly be. He transformed the atmosphere, imposed his style of play, and everyone embraced his ideas. And now last week we saw that uh, press conference where Neymar broke down in tears because he'd sort of been defending the, the horrible treatment that he'd had from the media. Um, how has Neymar's move to, to PSG gone down in Brazil? And was it, is it seen as a good thing? or? Uh, it kind of was. Most people see it like it was. Uh, because PSG is one of the biggest clubs in Europe. So they're always fighting for Champions League. And uh, there Neymar would, ha would have uh, a lot of uh, the Brazilian uh, friends. So... Yeah, it was, of course, a big deal because of all the money involved, but it, uh, most of the people think it was a, a nice move. Mm. You think he's sort of key to Brazil's success at the at the World Cup next summer? I think he is, but maybe not like he was in 2014. I don't think the national team now relies so much on him, like in the past. Mm. Um, one, I want you to indulge me for a moment now. I'm going to ask you about a player who's close to my heart, who uh, seems to be getting you know a lot, a lot of good press uh, both in England and Brazil. It's Gabriel Jesus. Um, there's been talk of him being uh, compared to Ronaldo. Um, even this week, I think Danny Elvers said it again. You, is he that good? Do you think? I think he is, and I think he will become a lot better because he has the talent, he has the technique, and he seems to be a very humble person, very down to earth, different, differently from Neymar, for example. And uh, he's now playing in a great club, in one of the best leagues in the world, uh, under Pep Guardiola. So I think he will develop a lot. Mm. So I really think, and I honestly hope that one day he can be as good as Ronaldo. Wow, that would be something. Yeah. And another one is um, is Aderson, who's uh, who's done very well since he came in at Manchester City. Um, I mean, for my money, he's already one of the best goalkeepers in Europe, but he's not Brazil's number one at the moment. Do you see that being the case next summer, or or do you think Alisson will keep keeping him out? I think uh, he can become uh, the number one keeper because Brazilian goalkeepers are not extraordinary. Uh, Alisson is just okay. Cassio is very average. So I think if he can keep with the good performance, he has big chances of becoming Brazil's number one. Mm. Um, I mean, when you think of Brazil, you think of attacking talent more than anything. They've got a lot in this current squad. Neymar, Jesus, Coutinho, Firmino. Um, I think you had Fred and Joe up front at the last World Cup. So you've come a long way since then. Um, do you think, are there any sort of weaknesses that Brazil have that, that are a bit of a worry for you? Uh, first of all, I'd say the midfield. I don't think the midfielders players are as strong and as talented as uh, the attacking players. And sometimes they leave too much space on, on the pitch between the midfield and the attack sector. But I will also say the pressure that it always comes when it, we're talking about the Brazilian national team, because it's Brazil. 
So it's always about uh, Pelé, Newton Santos, Garrincha, and it's always about the fact that it's the only national team that um, uh, took part in every World Cup, the only that won five titles, so the pressure is always there. And I think the players need to be mentally strong to deal with it. And they need to be humbled and not underestimate uh, the opponents just because, well, I'm wearing the Brazilian jersey. But they also need to, to understand that they don't need to be as good as the generation in the 70s, for, for example. So if something goes wrong, that doesn't mean they're not in the right path. Mm -hmm. Would you like to quickly say congratulations to the Corinthians for their seventh Brazilian title? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Club football is back this weekend and there's a huge game to look forward to in the English Premier League as Arsenal hosts Tottenham in the North London derby. Phil Costa from TIFO Football joins me on the line now to talk about that one. Um, Phil, I was talking to Lewis Ambrose, a fellow Arsenal fan like yourself the other day. Um, I asked him if, I thought Arsenal, if he thought Arsenal had any chance of winning this weekend and he said they've got no chance. Is that a view you share as well? <laughs> um, I don't think I'm so negative about it, but there's definitely a, a sense of, oh no, here, here we go again because... Our record against Spurs has been quite poor recently. I don't think we've we've beaten them in in the last seven Premier League games. So going into the game, Arsenal were not in a good run of form. We we lost to City and we had a dull draw against Red Star in the Europa League. Uh, granted, it was the the second string side, whereas Spurs are coming off the back of a, an impressive win against Real Madrid and and a, you know they grinded out a win against Crystal Palace. So. Look, it's, there's no there's no shock that under Pochettino, Spurs are a, a lot more cohesive, a lot fitter, a lot more disciplined, and a lot more clinical than Arsenal at the moment. And while there is, you know, the the chance of of turning it on with Sanchez and Ramsey and and Özil and Lacazette, you know, there's been nowhere near enough consistency um, in the in the team's play this season, especially away from home. So you know, it's it, always with Arsenal in these big games, it's just a it's just a matter of which side is going to turn up. And, you know, while I, I might not share uh, Lewis's um, sort of disappointment and negativity going into the game, I think that there's always a thought into in the back of your head that, that there's dreads losing to your London rivals. But if there's, a, if there's a chance to turn it around, then there's no better place to do it than this Saturday. And I'm hoping that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Arsenal were beaten 3-1 by Man City before the international break. Um, that game ended up being a lot closer than I think a lot of people thought it would be. Um, is that something that Arsene Wenger and Arsenal will take encouragement from? I think there were definitely parts of the game that you can take uh, sort of encouragement from. But, I mean, we said it was close. It was close in some parts and, and not close in others. I mean, that first half, um, City had complete domination of that. They Positionally, they were brilliant. You know, their one-touch football was... Arsenal were left chasing shadows at times, so it showed the clear the difference between City and Arsenal in particular. But I mean, they're they're easily the best side in England at the moment, and maybe even Europe. So at the end of the day, I think there was quite a not a resignation, but an acceptance from from a lot of Arsenal fans that this is sort of a game that you can write off, especially away from home. Um, but you know, like you said, there were parts of the game that that were encouraging, especially during the early stages of the second half. Um, you know, even though there was that the penalty um, when we scored, when Lacazette scored, you know, there was five or ten minutes where City looked nervous and we were sort of in the ascendancy and playing well. So, look, there's always parts of Arsenal's game that will impress. It's just finding that consistency. And, you know, people are coming in and out of the side. We haven't really had a settled 11 this year. You know, Xhaka and Ramsey have 
have been in and out the same with Ozil and Sanchez so it's all about finding a balance finding a cohesive structure within the side and, and really going from there and I think at home you know there's there's no excuse for not um, sort of taking the game by the scruff of the neck and really going for it and I think against Tottenham a nice win on, on Saturday would really lift everyone in and around the club and sort of kick on our season from there well, moving on to Spurs, um, I mean, they seem to me at least like City's strongest contenders for the title at the moment. Um, do you think that's the case? And, and could you see them even beating City when they play each other with the Etihad next month? I think they're definitely the uh, the team that's going to, to challenge them all the way. I know United started well, but they sort of uh, tailed off recently. And, you know, I think what you have in Spurs and City are two excellently coached sides. I mean, they have a lot of talent. Don't get me wrong, you know, City are... Uh, breathtaking to watch going forward with Sané and Sterling and Aguero you know the the list goes on but you know Spurs have a very strong attacking outfit as well in Harry Kane Dele Alli you know Christian Eriksen has, has been on fire recently um, even Shimon Son so you know there's there's strong systems in place both teams have a clear idea of where they want to go both have young managers at the top of the the game you know, there's a there's a clear sort of progression there. There's an idea, there's an image of the side, and I think that is so crucial in the modern game. Um, you know, even looking at Arsenal, there is no image there. There's no sort of future plan. There's no like, where do we go from here? So, I think definitely that these are the two teams that that will look to be challenging for the title late on. But I, you know, you say can they beat City at the Etihad? I think at home they're, they're just too strong at the moment. I know Spurs are you know, decent away from home. Um, but I think at the end of the day, City just have the experience and the talent to, to take it all the way under under Pep. I know we're only in November, but it just seems unlikely that anyone will catch them. But I do think that uh, what you said before, Spurs are definitely the, the team that's going to run them closest. Where do you stand on Arsene Wenger at the moment? Are you are you Wenger in or, or out, would you say? Uh, well, personally, I'm out. I think he should have gone after the, the last World uh, FA Cup win in the summer. I thought that was the, the perfect time to sort of start afresh, wipe a, a new slate clean. Um, for whatever reason, the club decided otherwise. And, and while he's here, you know, you have to get behind him and the team. So it's just, I, th- I think the modern game is so demanding. I think you need fresh ideas, you know, you need a fresh impetus. And I just think at Arsenal, everything's gone a bit stale. Um, and you know you need to find a way to motivate these players because at times they just look slow and lethargic and, and looking at the other top teams in Europe I'm looking at you know Napoli I'm looking at City I'm looking at, at Spurs they all look so fresh and, and like they enjoy their football all the time and I just think if Arsenal there's always a you know if, if something doesn't go their way it's always our oh, head down and you know we'll learn from this we've got a strong character but do we have a strong character I'm not so sure um, so I just think a change of scenery, a change of ideas would have been the best thing for the club in, in the summer. And I know it's not easy. There was a, not a shortage, but there was no obvious candidate to, to come in and succeed. And obviously there's going to be a, a, a transition because he's been here for so long. But, you know, I think he's got another 18 months left on his current deal. I don't see him going anywhere before that unless things go absolutely terribly wrong. So we just sort of have to get behind him and, and the team now and, and wait to see what happens. Well, speaking of uh, fresh ideas and a new impetus, uh, David Moyes is taking charge of his first match at West Ham uh, away at Watford on Sunday. Um, what's your opinion on that appointment? I thought it was quite a 
strange one. Um, I know, I think they, they sacked Bilic a lot earlier than they, they would have hoped, so that sort of left them in a in a difficult situation. I know Sam Allardyce is always a name being banded around. Um, I think with Moyes, it's a difficult one because even though he did really well at Everton, you know, the last three jobs he's had have been, you know, miserable failures. He's had, you know, Real Sociedad, he's had Sunderland, and it's just it's just not gone well. Um, and now he's got West Ham, who are struggling enough as it is. And you know, I know he's only there for six months, but there there doesn't really seem to be an obvious link between the two. I mean, you know, Moyes is famously stubborn, and West Ham are notoriously reluctant to learn from lessons they've you know had in the past. So it seems to be a little a little bit of an awkward reunion, and it's there seems to be an obvious chemistry there. So. I don't think they'll go down. I think they've got enough talent to sort of scrape points along the way, and and Moyes will will definitely shore them up at the back. But I just think it's a bit of it's a bit lifeless. I mean, you know, a team that's looking for, like I said before, this is a team looking for energy and positivity. And David Moyes is not really the the person to spark that into your side. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I don't think he'll he'll take them down, but I don't think he'll he'll be able to turn the tables completely. And uh, elsewhere on the managerial merry-go-round, um, Everton seems to be trying to tempt Marco Silva away from Watford. Um, he's only been there three months or four months. Do you think it would be a good idea for him to, to move to Everton now? I think in terms of Marco Silva, uh, his reputation has, has soared, really, ever since he arrived in English football. Um, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, he has the option to stay at Watford now and continue with, with what he's building at the moment in hope of a big, bigger job turning up so maybe a Champions League side um, definitely he'll be keeping an eye on the Arsenal job for example and I would have no complaints with that um, or does he take the Everton job now um, and maybe postpone that chance of, a, of, of taking on a top four club in the future I think from his point of view I think he'll stay um, I can certainly see why Everton would be a an attractive proposition despite their, their poor league form at the moment. You know, they've just been taken over. Um, regardless of, of where they spent their money, there's a decent squad of players there, players that will be looking to prove themselves under a new manager. Um, and, you know, Everton are, are a historical club. They've got tradition, culture. Um, so they're still an attractive proposition for any manager. Um, in terms of Marco Silva, I know they've tried hard for him. But I think Watford have done well standing firm and I think he would be wise to, to stick around at Watford as well because he's finally got a squad there that's buying into into him and his philosophy. And, you know, they're, they're a good squad as well. Um, so we'll have to see what, what happens there. Um, but I think overall he's going to stay um, and I think that's the right decision. Uh, lastly, I read a nice piece you wrote about Pep Guardiola recently. Um, how impressed have you been with what he's done at City this season and, and can you see anyone catching them for the title? Um, I mentioned earlier I, I know we're in November but I honestly don't see anyone catching them I think you know Pep Guardiola is, is easily the best manager in the world um, and I think there was a lot, a lot of enjoyment in his in his failures last season um, you know in English football didn't quite take so smoothly to him as maybe Spain and Germany have over the over the years but you know just the way they play I think that, that one touch football you know the the speed at which they break on the on the counter. You know they're just ruthless, um, and I think that sort of spirit has been missed in the Premier League. I think 
you know, that, that attitude of going for goals all the time is a refreshing one. And, you know, people point to the money he spent, but what, what sides are built without spending a lot of money? I know Spurs are doing really well at the moment, but they're an outlier, let's be honest. You, know, you look at Real Madrid, you look at Bayern Munich, you look at Barcelona over the years, they've all had top talent being being brought in from, from afar. Um, and I think as well, you know, last season there, it was underwhelming, but, you know, the squad was ageing. You know, he had no fullbacks under the age of 30, which heavily impacted the way he wanted to play. So, you know, it was always going to take time. And coaching such an intense style of play doesn't just happen overnight. You know, Pep is meticulous in in what he does and, and, and this was bound to take, you know, six or six or twelve months to really perfect. But now they've perfected it and you can see um that it's working. So um, you know, it's always disappointing to to cut off a title race so early into the season. But, you know, even regarding if anyone's going to catch them, I really don't see it. And, you know, it would take a huge blip both in the league and in the Champions League for them not to not to achieve things this season. Phil Costa from TIFO Football there. Um, now that's almost all we've got time for this week. Um, but before we go, we'll have a little chat about the Bundesliga. Why not? Um, Constantine, um, a, a team that rarely get a mention on this podcast, are your team, uh, Hertha Berlin, which I know they're not actually called. I'm just saying that to annoy <laughs> you. Um, how, how's the season been going for Hertha so far, do you think? Well, the season is pretty much uh, dominated by changes and new developments and challenges for the club as we play Europa League for the first time since years. And furthermore, people who have carried the team in the recent years, especially Solomon Kalou and Captain Veda Dibishevich are growing older and older and therefore need to be replaced soon. And the manager is looking for um, players to do so and for new perspectives with young players who he also implements occasionally. One name to drop here is Arne Meyer. That's a name to remember, if you ask me, mm. a central midfielder. The season is okay. It has shadows and it has lights. Uh, the cup is already over for us, as <laughs> usual, pretty early in the season. The league is all right. Recently, two uh, times unbeaten. Furthermore, an important victory against Hamburg before the national team break. So I would say, uh, all in all, you can be satisfied, but there's still room for improvement, mm. as always. <laughs> uh, Berlin's other big club, uh, Union Berlin, um, came close to getting promoted to the Bundesliga last season. They fell away at the end. Would you like to see them in the top division and a, a Berlin derby again? I would definitely think it would be a huge enrichment to the whole league, uh, as well as to the city. Union, as you said, has... Uh, had its moments being close to being promoted. However, they could never like quite capitalize so far. But I think if they do so, there will be a whole new level of euphoria about the club. And uh, Berlin Derby, we've had four of them so far only because of the... Oh, really? Uh, all, yeah. We have a really unique uh, football history here in Berlin due to the wall and everything. And the two clubs, they're on so many levels so different. <laughs> But these four matches, I can say each and every one, and I think I speak for every football fan in Berlin who supports one of the two teams, have been quite unique. And I would really love to see it on the on the big uh, stage of the Bundesliga. Yeah. Um, bit of big uh, Bundesliga news came out today about um, Sandro Wagner potentially moving to Bayern Munich in January. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, really, Nagelsmann came out and said, it's true, he's asked to leave. What, what do you think about that one? I can honestly say I would have never expected to read the news Sandro Wagner to Bayern Munich. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it fits in their new policy of uh, introducing the FC Bayern Germany again, which was a word that Uli Hoeneß, their long-year president, once uh, brought up. 
I think as a replacement to Lewandowski, he can be useful in occasional situations, you know, when they just need one goal and they're down and for 10 minutes. But all in all, I just can't see why you would implement such a player into such a team on such a level. Mm. Nothing against Wagner. He's a decent forward, but I don't think he usually has the level to play for Bayern Munich. Hmm. I had to laugh that uh, Robert Lewandowski was quoted as saying that Bayern should go for a young, hungry striker that can kind of learn off him. Do you think the fact he's dyed his hair grey in the past couple of days means he thinks that he's sort of older than he is now or something like that? I, I don't know if you saw those photos of him dyeing his hair, but he, he looks absolutely ridiculous, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, uh, he looks like he's about to like start a boy band or something, doesn't he? <laughs> I think uh, he looks like, you know, when you see like ad- adverts for hair dye products and you see the before and after. <laughs> he used to look like the after picture and now he looks like the before one. It's, it's very bizarre. It's, it's quite unique, uh, so to speak, his look. Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, I think sooner or later Bayern needs to find another solution for replacing him and uh, I don't know as I said if Wagner is that guy but I think it's definitely good for them to focus on that question because in my opinion that's one of the reasons that has kept them from the biggest biggest successes uh, that they only have this one world class forward yeah can well I, can I make a comment about ahead, Wagner go ahead uh, just imagine Champions League week Lewandowski gets injured Sander Wagner is the replacement how does that feel We'll probably soon find out, won't we? <laughs> uh, well, that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, thank you to Constantine, Natalia, uh, Phil Costa on the phone, our producer Damo, and of course to you for listening at home. We'll be back next week, so behave yourselves and we'll see you then. Bye.